This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 24th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. When is a judge not a judge? When he's an administrative law judge for a federal agency. And when is an administrative law judge not an administrative law judge? When no one's exactly clear how he got the job. So what do the judgments of this non-judge administrator mean? Andrew Grossman, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, discusses the current Supreme Court case of Lucia v. Securities and Exchange Commission. Raymond Lucia uh, conducted a financial seminar called Buckets of Money, um, which was t- providing investment advice to retirees. Um, the which SEC- should, be, should be a red flag, just the name <laughs> of the seminar. Um, that's certainly what the SEC thought, uh, despite that Mr. Lucia had been conducting the seminar for decades. Um, and they brought charges against him, but they didn't do it in court. They did it in their own administrative court, uh, something that is part of the agency, and it's overseen by a so-called administrative law judge, or ALJ. Um, they tried to bar him from the industry. They imposed uh, penalties against him. Um, and all of this was overseen by somebody who uh, is not only a real is not a real judge, but nobody even figures out. No one even knows how he got his position. OK, so let's begin with what do administrative law judges do? Administrative law judges look a lot like, well, judges. Uh, they conduct trials. They decide motions. They take testimony. They shape the record. Uh, and ultimately, they render judgments uh, that, uh, if they are not uh, overturned or modified, uh, become binding on the parties uh, as a matter of law. So you could uh, – for example, if I, if I am subject to some sort of action by an agency, an administrative law judge hands down some penalty, what is my recourse in a – real court in the judicial branch. So if an ALJ rules against you, generally you can appeal that uh, to the actual agency. So in other words, you could ask, say, the Securities and Exchange Commission to adopt some other view of things than what the ALJ did. Um, But the agencies, the actual appointed agencies don't have to do that. Um, They can simply allow the ALJ decision to become final. And at that point, you go into court. The problem is, is that when you go into court, um, the ALJ's factual findings uh, are generally reviewed for clear error. Um, There's deference given uh, to what it is that that the ALJ has decided. And so you kind of go into court with a thumb on the scale in favor of the agency and against the person against whom the agency has taken action. Um, So it it really isn't – it's a way of kind of stacking the deck in favor of the government. All right. So what has the Supreme Court done here? Well, in a series of cases, the court has generally held that – that government officials who conduct these types of proceedings um, are so-called officers of the United States. That is a constitutional term. And it matters because an officer of the United States is someone who is not an employee but must be appointed according to the appointments clause. Now, everybody knows that for senior officers, so-called principal officers, the president nominates them, the Senate confirms them, and that's how they get into office. But for inferior officers, um, they can be appointed by basically any principal officer um, whom Congress gives the authority to do that. The problem here, however, is that these ALJs at the SEC, they look a lot like officers of the United States, but the SEC, the principal officers, never appointed them. In fact, it's not even clear how this particular one got his job at all. Nobody really seems to know. Does he know? (laughs) 
Uh, he has speculated that someone in the SEC's Human Resources Department must have signed off uh, on his uh, taking the position, uh, but it's unclear. But, you know, the key point is that there is a certain measure of accountability that's entailed uh, when a principal officer, someone who has been appointed directly by the president, when that person puts their name on the line and actually appoints somebody, they take some responsibility for that. There's a solemnity to it. There's a seriousness to it. In this instance, that never happened. Um, and it doesn't comply with the Constitution, but there really is that aspect of accountability that the Constitution was uh, trying to guarantee here uh, that really seems to have gone out the window. This seems like a much broader issue than uh, just this case. I mean, it, just the, the the notion of, uh, one, how courts tend to defer to executive agencies. You have judges within these agencies that receive the benefit of uh, this deference from courts. Uh, what what do you view as the sort of the original sin here? Well, I mean, you've got a period of, what, 70 or 80 years when the Supreme Court was basically out to lunch in terms of uh, enforcing the structural separation of powers and the specific requirements of the Constitution. And during that time, uh, you know, a vast administrative state has grown, uh, which wields many powers that would be quite foreign uh, to the people who wrote and, um, and adopted the Constitution. Um, what the Supreme Court is doing in a very gradual fashion is looking at original meaning and trying to see how that original meaning can be applied to the circumstances of today in a way that is not overly disruptive. Uh, and at oral argument yesterday in this case, uh, the Supreme Court, I think, had a little bit of concern that if they rule in favor of Mr. Lucia, um, that it could have some broader ramifications. But, you know, ultimately, the Constitution is the law. Um, the, the consequences of carrying out the law is not really something that should guide um, the court's judgment. But even so, uh, the consequences here are pretty minimal. We're talking about just administrative law judges and every agency that uses them already has authority to appoint them in the way that the Constitution requires. They may not have done it, but they have the authority to fix that problem. So is is deference the problem here, that you just judicial deference as a as a uh, practical matter? Uh, deference really isn't an issue in this case, at least not directly, but it is in a sort of indirect sense. If the courts are going to defer to somebody, that person – the person who made that decision, the person who found those facts, the person who shaped the record, those are very serious things. And if, and if a court is going to defer to that person, that person has got to be an officer of the United States. They couldn't possibly just be some kind of mere employee um, you know, who isn't wielding any significant governmental power. Um, it's just the wrong way to look at it. If the Supreme Court is moving in a gradual fashion to sort of, I guess, stand up to uh, administrative agencies, what would we expect to see for a decision for on behalf of Lucia or for Lucia uh, and not the SEC? Sure. Well, I think there are three things to look for. The first, it just concerns these Securities and Exchange Commission administrative law judges. The court could go really narrow and say, what these people are doing, it really looks a lot like a trial. And if you're conducting something that looks like a trial, you're an officer of the United States and you got to be appointed. 
The second thing is the court could go a little bit broader and say that its ruling along those lines applies to everybody who's appointed as an ALJ, uh, even if they're in other agencies. There are reasons to do that. The statute is certainly structured that way. Um, and and as, as a practical matter, all of these ALJs do wield pretty significant powers. There was some concern expressed by the justices that a ruling of that breadth uh, may be disruptive. But I think in the end, uh, there really isn't much of a likely case for disruption here because the agencies do have ways of dealing with uh, appointing uh, these ALJs, uh, ratifying previous decisions, and just making sure that there really aren't any bumps in the road. Um, and then the third thing is, um, you know, what the what kind of guidance the court gives more broadly in terms of how to draw this line uh, between officers of the United States and mere governmental employees. Recent originalist research, uh, for example, by Professor uh, Jennifer Mascott, has indicated that many people whom we now consider to be mere government employees uh, in the founding era, in the in the in the first decades of constitutional practice would have been considered to be uh, officers of the United States and therefore subject to the appointments clause. So the question is, you know, how far down the road is the court willing to go in this one case? Uh, it's unclear. It seems like there are several issues that are relating to uh, the administrative state that seem to have an opportunity to come together down the road. And that is one, um, over and above the uh, regulations that it, that these agencies write there is guidance and uh, you know you have to follow a specific process for re regulation but for guidance that can change on a whim of an administration or decades later an agency can decide that it oh we had this power all along we just weren't using it and now we're going to interpret this regulation to say that we do have this power and you have other agencies that are saying well no even the regulations are suspect because uh, no one in it who has been appointed uh, actually signed off on a lot of these regulations. Well, I, I think what brings these different topics together is that the Constitution requires a certain amount of formalism in the way that government uh, is conducted. It requires government officials to do things in a particular way. It requires certain people to sign off on things. And what you see again and again is that a lot of those practice, practices have fallen by the wayside. And as that's happened, uh, the practical power that is vested in lower level government employees has increased dramatically and the accountability of the entire process has gone down. And so when you begin begin to uh, begin again enforcing those types of constitutional requirements, what you get is a more accountable government. You get a, a clearer sense of who's exercising power and what it is they're doing, and you get more transparency, and you get a, a better view in the public of what it is the government is doing and who's responsible for it. So these are all good things from a policy point of view, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, as a legal matter, uh, it really is the right direction to go. I you know and I I was going to mention that the the third thing is the fact that there's this huge fight over CFPB which is an agency that was as far as I can tell uh, designed to be unaccountable to both Congress and the president so that's a level of accountability that at least some people believe is uh, something that our executive agencies ought to be vested with. You know, the, the CFPB is another instance of needing to needing to mind the P's and Q's. Um, the Constitution puts the appropriations power in Congress, 
Um, but Dodd-Frank, which established the CFPB, puts that power in the head of the CFPB uh, who gets to decide how much money he needs to run his agency. Uh, and the result, of course, is that there simply is no accountability for what it is that agency uh, does. Uh, I think I found it very heartening that uh, Mick Mulvaney, who is the uh, interim director of the agency, uh, has been pushing very hard for reforms to bring that agency in line with constitutional requirements. To the extent that the president is the head of the executive branch and the uh, ruler or the chief executive of the these various agencies, to what extent can uh, the president, whoever he or she might be, remove uh, these judges or people who may not be appointed? Well. Uh the president, as uh, the person who is vested with the executive power, has always been understood to have a removal power uh, for certain government officials. Uh, the line has been blurred uh, over the 20th century as to uh, which officials can be subject to protections against removal uh, and which ones can. And obviously, a lot of people are discussing that issue now in the context of the Mueller investigation. Um, in this case, the Department of Justice has asked the Supreme Court to consider that issue with respect to these administrative law judges. They are protected by by very strong anti-removal uh, provisions, they can only be removed for cause. In other words, uh, malfeasance or dereliction of duty or things along those lines. Um, the executive, the uh, Department of Justice has asked the court uh, to rule that if they are um, officers of the United States, if they are subject to the appointments clause, the flip side of the coin is that they have to be subject to at least some amount of removal discretion on the part of the executive. It doesn't need to be complete. And I think that the Department of Justice actually hit a very uh, nice, found a very nice balance here. Um, their view, the, the, the argument they put forward to the court was that they don't want to intrude on the so-called decisional independence of the uh, administrative law judges. In other words, how a judge decides any particular case, uh, in the executive's view, at least in this case under this statute, that would not be grounds for removal. But what would be uh, is failure to follow governmental policies that are set by officers of the United States. And so you get this nice balance between accountability, in other words, following the policies as laid out by the executive, uh, versus the kind of neutrality and independence that you would hope to see in somebody who is exercising powers that, you know, honestly look a lot like the powers of a judge. Andrew Grossman is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 